Hello, bonjour, and tantse. I'm Paula Simons, and this is Alberta Unbound. This spring marks the second anniversary of the Alberta Unbound podcast. And over the course of our first 21 episodes, we've featured a pretty good mix of panel discussions and one-on-one interviews. But this month, we're trying something just a little bit different. On March 22, 2022, I had the honor of delivering the Merv Leach QC Memorial Lecture in Constitutional Law. It's an annual event co-hosted by the law schools of the University of Alberta and the University of Calgary. This year was a particularly special one for the lecture series. Since 2022 is the 40th anniversary of Canada's modern constitution, the 40th anniversary of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and the 40th anniversary of the Notwithstanding Clause. It's also the 50th anniversary of Alberta's Bill of Rights, created by Merv Leach, who was the first Attorney General in the first Lougheed government. I gave my lecture virtually from my Senate office in Ottawa to an online audience via Zoom, and people seem to like it. So if you'll humor me, we're going to share the lecture with all of you over the course of the next three episodes. This first episode is called Planting a Living Tree, for reasons which I hope will become clear as you listen. So buckle up for a talk about Alberta history, Alberta politics, and the way Alberta's heroes and reprobates, who were sometimes the self-same people, shaped constitutional history. And my lords, my ladies, Dean Billingsley, Dean Holloway, and members of the Leach family, and all of you watching from wherever you may be, hello, bonjour, and tense. I'm honored to be speaking with you today from our nation's capital on the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabek people. I'm especially honored to have been invited to give this year's lecture in honor of Merv Leach. I never had the chance to cover Mr. Leach as a politician when I was, uh, I was still a high school student when he left politics, but my father was a lawyer and a graduate of the U of A Law School, and at our place, Merv Leach was a household name because of his commitment to civil rights and to Alberta's economic future. Along with colleagues like Peter Lougheed and Lou Heinemann, he helped to pull this province into a new modern era of optimism, prosperity, and political courage. He created Alberta's first Bill of Rights in 1972. He helped this province take a leadership role in Confederation and helped broker the deal that led to the repatriation of the Constitution and the creation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, complete with Merv Leach's compromise brainwave, the notwithstanding clause. This year, as we mark the 50th anniversary of Alberta's Bill of Rights and the 40th anniversary of the Charter, I wanted to talk about constitutional history and about what it's like to find myself in the midst of making it. Don't think of this so much as a conventional speech or lecture. After all, I'm a storyteller, not a professor of constitutional law. Think of this instead as a series of stories, overlapping, interconnected stories, nestled inside each other like those Ukrainian nesting dolls that are so much a part of our Alberta heritage. Let's open the first stall, planting a living tree. Every time I enter the Senate, I pass statues of five remarkable, redoubtable Alberta women, Emily Murphy, Nellie McClung, Irene Parlby, Henrietta Muir Edwards, and Louise McKinney. Louise McKinney was a teacher, preacher, and temperance crusader, and the first woman in the British Empire to serve as a member of a legislative assembly. Irene Parlby was a rancher in central Alberta who became Alberta's first female cabinet minister. Henrietta Muir Edwards, the oldest of the group, was a journalist, social crusader, and publisher, and the doyen of Canada's suffrage movement. Nellie McClung was a novelist and journalist and an Alberta MLA. 
Emily Murphy, another crusading journalist and author, was one of the first women in the British Empire to serve as a magistrate. They did not share the same politics, nor the same party. Murphy was a conservative, McClung a liberal. Parlby belonged to the United Farmers of Alberta, a sort of forerunner of today's NDP. Edwards and McKinney, like me, were independents. But one day in 1927, they met at Emily Murphy's house for tea, just a few steps from the University of Alberta Law School, and agreed to join forces to argue before Alberta, Canada's highest court that women had the legal right to serve in the Senate of Canada. To do that, they had to argue that women in Canada were legal persons, not just in terms of pains and penalties, but in terms of rights and privileges. They lost. This is perhaps not surprising when you consider the character of Canada's Chief Justice of the day, Sir Lyman Poor Duff. Yes, that was his name. I'm not kicking it up. Sir Lyman Poor Duff was a stickler for precedent and for the strictest of strict interpretations of the black letter law on the page. The judicial function in considering and applying statutes is one of interpretation and interpretation alone, he once wrote. The duty of the court in every case is loyally to endeavor to ascertain the intention of the legislature and to ascertain that intention by reading and interpreting the language with the legislature itself has selected for the purpose of expressing it. Well, those five Alberta suffragists weren't about to bow down to the literalism of Sir Lyman Poor Duff. They appealed, as one could in those days, to the Privy Council in London. And here's where we come to an important accident of history, a constitutional coincidence. In June of 1929, Ramsay MacDonald, one of the founders of the British Labour Party, had won a general election, though not by very much, and had become prime minister of a minority Labour government. MacDonald appointed a progressive lawyer and human rights crusader named John Sankey as his Lord Chancellor. Now, Sankey didn't come from a noble or landed family. His roots were thoroughly middle class. But Ramsay MacDonald made him a baron and put him in charge of Britain's legal affairs. If the person's case had arrived in London just a few months earlier, while Conservative Stanley Baldwin was prime minister, its outcome might have been very different. But on October 18, 1929, Lord Sankey ruled that Canadian women were indeed persons with all the legal rights of Canadian men. Never mind what the drafters of the British North America Act had intended back in 1867. Sankey said Canada's constitution was a living tree capable of growth and expansion within its natural limits and in, quote, a continuous process of evolution. I do not tell this story because the famous five were unalloyed heroines. I tell it not despite the fact that they were deeply, deeply flawed, but because of it. Let us understand. Emily Murphy was an outspoken, vicious racist who opposed Chinese immigration, Black immigration, Jewish immigration, Ukrainian immigration, if she'd had her way, my grandparents would never have been allowed into this country. Nellie McClung was considerably more sympathetic to new Canadian immigrants, and Henrietta Muir Edwards actively campaigned for First Nations women to have the same legal rights as white women. But just like Emily Murphy, both McClung and Edwards believed passionately in eugenics and in the coerced sexual sterilization of those they deemed unfit to breed. So did Irene Parlby, who was actually a cabinet minister in the Alberta government, which brought in the shameful Sexual Sterilization Act, which remained the law in Alberta until Peter Lougheed and his attorney general, Merv Leach, abolished it in 1972. 
All five of these crusading women were imperialists and colonizers, classists and racists, who fought fiercely for the rights of women who looked and sounded like them and were not so infused about rights for others. If they'd walked down White Avenue in 1929 and passed my paternal grandmother, Risa Hardashnikov-Simovich, I doubt they would have invited her in for tea. Still, because of their fight, I get to sit in the Senate representing all of you. And that's not their only legacy. In 1982, Canada adopted a Charter of Rights and Freedoms, a formal written document of what must have seemed at the time like a complete list of enumerated rights. And some might have wondered if the living tree principle still mattered. Then, in 1991, Delwyn Vreen, a 25-year-old lab instructor at King's College in Edmonton, was fired from his job for being gay. He filed a complaint with the Alberta Human Rights Commission. Now, back in 1972, Alberta's original Bill of Rights, the one introduced by Merv Leach, didn't say anything about LGBTQT rights. The Individual Rights Protection Act, which Alberta also adopted in 1972, didn't say anything about discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And so Alberta's Human Rights Commission, which was also founded 50 years ago this year in 1972, told Delwyn Vreen he had no case. Vreen took his argument to the Court of Queen's bench and won a sympathetic hearing. Madam Justice Anne Russell ruled Alberta's human rights legislation was unconstitutional. But the Alberta government appealed. Now, let's open another nesting doll. In one of those strange historic ironies, the Court of Appeal panel was led by Mr. Justice John McClung, the grandson of Nellie McClung. But this McClung was no living tree fan, and he wasn't all that sold on the charter either. When Delwyn Vreen's lead counsel, Sheila Greckel, was speaking, McClung actually swiveled around in his chair, turning his back on her closing arguments, and his written judgment in the case dripped with disgust and disdain. The Alberta legislature, he wrote, shouldn't be dictated to by federally appointed judges brandishing the charter. He didn't stop there. I am unable to conclude that it was a forbidden, let alone a reversible legislative response for the province of Alberta to step back from the validation of homosexual relations, including sodomy, he thundered. Now, if Sheila Greckel and her co-counsel Doug Stollery had been content to leave things there, Justice McClung's fiery judgment might have been the last words on LGBTQT rights in Alberta for a long time. Instead, Greckel and Stollery raised funds, found a coalition of legal allies, and appealed to the Supreme Court in Ottawa. And in 1998, Canada's Supreme Court said it didn't matter what the Charter of Rights and Freedom didn't include sexual orientation when it was written in 1982. It deemed sexual orientation an analogous ground, analogous to race or gender or religion. The judges said our constitution was still a living tree, and that we in Canada had effectively grown and evolved to the point where it was unconstitutional to discriminate against queer Canadians. And they read into the Charter and to Alberta's human rights legislation a new protection against discrimination based on sexual orientation. Thus, the legacy of the person's case isn't just that it established that middle-class Anglo white women were persons. Eventually, eventually, it ensured the equal personhood of all Canadians, 
regardless of gender, race, religion, disability, sexual orientation, or gender identity. As for being on the right side of history, well, Sheila Greckel, who was treated so disrespectfully by Mr. Justice McClung, ended up sitting herself as a member of Alberta's Court of Appeal. And Doug Stollery, the shy solicitor who found his voice and gave the moving closing argument before the Supreme Court, well, he ended up as a chancellor of the University of Alberta. And as a footnote, two other young Alberta lawyers who appeared as interveners in this case at the Supreme Court, Ritu Kular and Julie Lloyd, they're both now judges too. Ah, but wait, because this story's not over. We have some twists and turns, more dolls within dolls. In the wake of the decision, Premier Ralph Klein came under immense pressure from some in his party and in the province to invoke the notwithstanding clause to perpetuate legalized homophobia in Alberta. Ah, yes, the notwithstanding clause, the self-same workaround that Peter Lougheed and Merv Leach had helped to place into the Constitution back in 1982 as a key part of the provincial federal compromise. I remember covering the story of the Vreen decision for the Edmonton Journal, which had, under the moral leadership of publisher Linda Hughes and editor-in-chief Murdoch Davis, argued passionately against invoking the clause. Tensions were high. We didn't have Twitter or Facebook back then, but the city and the province were humming with anger and anticipation, waiting to see what would happen next. In the end, Premier Klein pushed back against the right-wing voices in his own caucus and his own cabinet. People close to him told me later that he was moved in part by the wave of nasty homophobic letters, faxes, and phone calls to his office. He was, I've been told, genuinely appalled by some of the hateful messages and said he had no idea that gay Albertans faced such blatant hatred. It is another accident of history, though, that one of his closest political advisors and confidants happened to be a queer woman. And because Ralph Klein had at least one close gay friend, he himself was able to put a human face to a political and philosophical decision. If Alberta had had a different conservative premier, if Ralph Klein had not had a lesbian advisor, the story of Delwyn Vreend might have had a very different ending. But the notwithstanding clause worked and worked just the way it was supposed to. It gave Ralph Klein, the democratically elected premier, the final political decision. He could have used the clause to veto the Vreend ruling within Alberta, but he made a fundamentally political decision not to invoke the clause, and the legislature remained supreme, just as Merv Leach and Peter Lougheed had intended. Uh, but wait, now I'm going to open up another doll. Remember the Eugenics Act, the one so loudly championed by Emily Murphy, the one passed by the UFA government in which Irene Parlby was actually a cabinet minister, the one finally repealed by Leach and Lougheed? Well, in March of 1998, just one month before the Supreme Court's Vreen decision, the Alberta government actually had invoked the notwithstanding clause in an attempt to stymie Albertans who had been victims of the Eugenics Act and wanted to sue for redress. The Klein government had been spooked when Leilani Muir, who had been sterilized as a teenager without her consent or knowledge, successfully sued the province and was awarded a judgment of more than $740,000 plus costs. In an effort to head off more expensive lawsuits and to save millions, the province preemptively invoked the notwithstanding clause to stop other victims from suing and cap their damages at $150,000 a person. The public outcry was instantaneous and led again, if I may say so, by the Edmonton Journal. Less than 24 hours later, the province had backed down and Ralph Klein personally apologized. 
This was presented to caucus in pure legal technical terms. And yes, my political sense probably didn't click into gear, Premier Klein told reporters. It became abundantly clear, he added, that to individuals in this province, in this country, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is paramount, and the use of any tool to undermine the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is something that should be used only in very, very rare circumstances. So here's the question. Was Premier Klein especially reluctant to invoke the notwithstanding clause in Vreemd, given the extraordinary public revulsion at his attempt to use it against eugenics victims less than a month before? I suspect so. And so in this strange way, the fight for the rights of victims of eugenics also helped to ensure the rights of gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans, and two-spirited people in Alberta. In the end, the province settled 800 claims by sexual sterilization victims at a total cost of $142 million, a sum that in no way recompenses the true human cost of Alberta's obsession with eugenics but a sum to remind us that the famous five had some truly infamous ideas and that the human rights legacy they leave us is a complicated one. But that's exactly the point I want to make. Our constitution and our charter were far from immaculate conceptions. Our charter rights evolved and they keep on evolving and they are as much a product of our mistakes and our injustices as they are of our better angels. In Mark Antony's famous funeral oration for Julius Caesar, Shakespeare has his character say, the evil that men do lives after them, the good is oft interred with their bones. In the case of Emily Murphy, Nellie McClung, Henrietta Muir Edwards, Irene Parlby, and Louise McKinney, the good and the evil they did both marked our province and our constitution forever. And that was part one of the 2002 Leach Memorial Lecture in Constitutional Law hosted, as it is every year, by the University of Alberta and the University of Calgary Faculties of Law. My thanks to Dean Barbara Billingsley of the U of A and Dean Ian Holloway of the U of C for inviting me to give this year's lecture. And thanks, too, to the Lawheed and Leach families whose generosity makes the lecture series possible. Alberta Unbound is produced and edited by Caitlin Cummings, and the Leach Lectures were produced by Yvonne Kuster and Peter Desmond Dahl, with technical operations and sound recording by Tim Young. Get ready now for part two, my life as an amateur gardener.